I um I went to a missionary Baptist church uh, in between my junior and the beginning of my senior year of high school, and it's been that long since I've sung "Mansion Over the Hilltop." So, yeah, so I'm I am familiar with that song, um, but it's been a while. We're going to go back into the passage we were reading this morning from Luke chapter two. Um, sometimes, sometimes it just happens this way where um, there's just it just there's just a week that's hard to figure out how to fill. Um, we had just finished the Holy Spirit series. I didn't really want to start back into Revelation until the new year, and so I kind of had this week of what am I going to do. And thankfully, God said, well, I'm just going to open up enough of this one passage that you can get two sermons out of it. So um, this morning, we focused in on Simeon's words, especially. But tonight, I want to kind of, I want to take a bigger step, bigger picture, look at the same passage that we were at, uh, partly because there is so much to this. There's so much richness in the stories of Christ that Um, If you're not really looking for it in a 21st century American mindset, you completely miss it. But when you see it all together, it really brings home the gospel. It's kind of like we were talking about over the last few weeks, Daryl and I have been talking about things and y'all talked about it in Sunday school uh, where the, the shepherds, in Bethlehem would raise the sacrificial lambs for the temple and how all of that really brings to the Christmas story an element that we so often miss. There's some elements in here that are easy to skip over, easy to pass by. And if you're not careful, you'll miss the significance of what's going on. We talked about a couple of them this morning, but I really want, I really want to dig in. So we're going to be in Luke chapter two, verses 22 and following. Um, we're going to read from 22 all the way to 40 and talk about the whole passage. I'm not going to spend as much time tonight on what Simeon said because we spent enough time on that this morning um, to to really dig into that, but I want to get the surrounding picture. So Luke chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's stop there for just a moment. I mentioned this morning that when you have, when a woman gives birth to a child, that she becomes ritually unclean. Now, you have to realize unclean in the ritual sense, is different from sinful. The two are different concepts. Sinful is where you do something against God, okay? We are all familiar with that, right? Sin is where you're directly, intentionally opposing God, okay? Ritual uncleanliness is something a little different. Oftentimes, you would be ritually unclean if it wasn't something wrong that you did, but just something that happened. One example of that is childbirth. And in Leviticus chapter 12, God sets forth the prescription for the ritual purification of a woman who has given birth. Um, I want to read that to you. This is Leviticus chapter 12. And my fingers don't want to work tonight. So, so Leviticus 12, God is 
laying out all of these laws. And you got to remember the book of Leviticus is written to priests. So it, it shows the priests. This is how you conduct things. This is how you do the worship in the temple. This is how you offer the sacrifices. This is how you do all of these different things. So, so he gets to this topic of childbirth. The Lord spake to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. Now that was the typical seven days uh, for the monthly cycle, okay? That was that was typical. As the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, as the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Basically, what it's saying is through the whole process of everything that happens after childbirth, the woman is to be considered unclean until, from a ritual standpoint, until 40 days. After 40 days, I know this isn't, this isn't the most comfortable topic, I understand, but after 40 days, she was to go to for the purifications and all of that. Skip down to verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. So you get that? Two different offerings. One was to be a burnt offering. That's the one that I mentioned earlier was the commitment. This is the one that's that you offer it with the with the sense of you're turning toward God to commit to to be holy in all your ways. The other, the pigeon or the turtle dove, would be for a sin offering. However, not everybody can afford that. There were some folks so poor they couldn't afford a lamb and a bird. And lambs are pretty expensive. You get all that wool, they're 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 much more expensive than than other things. So God makes provision for that. Look down in verse 8. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. And yes, that is where the Christmas song comes up with two turtle doves. It's the sacrifice. The reason there's two different choices here, in the wintertime, uh, turtle doves migrated down to Africa. And so they wouldn't be around Israel. So you needed something for the winter sacrifices. And so the pigeons were available for that time of year. And when the turtle doves are around, they're available for that time of year. So um, God gives the option for those who cannot afford a lamb and a turtle dove or pigeon to give two of the birds. And that's what Mary and Joseph have to do. They're poor enough. They can't afford the lamb. They're also away from home, too. And they're not shepherds by trade. So lambs are kind of hard to come by. They're expensive. So they bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. We don't know which. The Luke doesn't specify. So we don't know what time of year it was. But alas, they come to bring in these sacrifices. One of the things that Luke is careful to do, and I I mentioned it this morning, is to talk about how they fulfill the law of God. And I want to show you, let me show you that. Verse 22, look back. And when the time came for purification, according to the law of Moses. Then he does something interesting. Look in verse 23. As it is written... In the law of the Lord. That's an interesting change. He goes from the law of Moses to the law of the Lord. 
And then in verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. This isn't the only time this has happened. And it's not the only time that Luke is going to specify this. Luke is very careful to show that Christ and his parents are intentionally following God's law. In fact, he says it again. Verse 39, at the end of the passage, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. This is a very, he's doing this as bookends to show us on either side of the story that Mary and Joseph are being very careful to follow God's law. Now, why would that matter? Let me tell you why it matters. How can you say that you are God's Messiah if you're not even following God's commands? Now you think, he's a month old. How can he follow God's commands? His parents. There is a, there is a point in a child's life where it's all up to mama and daddy. Everything that they get, everything that they see, everything that they hear, everything that they learn, it, it, it all sits on mama and daddy's shoulders. Now, there will be times when they take it on their shoulders. There will be times when they become accountable and they make their own choices and mama and daddy can't always affect those choices as profoundly as we would like. Amen? But here's a picture of two people that are making sure that this child fulfills the commands of God. Now, these commands, we don't take our children to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day. We don't, we don't offer sacrifices like this anymore uh, because he fulfilled the law. And we look at this through the, the lens of what Christ has done. And we realize that not only has he, he didn't abolish the law. He didn't say, oh, that, that's all junk. You don't have to do any of that anymore. That that's God's old way of dealing with it. No, he fulfills the law so that in him we fulfill the law. But this is how he fulfills the law, by fulfilling the law. There's no shortcut. Holiness doesn't have a shortcut. It's not like you can just say, well, you know, I have good intentions, even if I can't quite do it all. That's not how holiness works. You're holy by being holy. That's how holiness works. And because of what Christ has done, because Christ has fulfilled every dot and every tittle of the law, every dot of every I, every cross of every T, we know because we are in him that there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. We know that because we are in him, we are able to fulfill the law, not by our own efforts, but by his effort. And this is how he's doing it, step by step, exactly as God has prescribed it. You can't come to God on your own terms. It's got to be through His. And one of the reasons that I want to back up and show you that is because this morning in the time that we had, I, I, I didn't want to take so much time on that that we missed the importance of what Simeon saw in this child, the salvation of God before his eyes. I wanted to bring that out. But I also want us to understand that this is not just a somebody doing random things and God likes it. This is them doing what God has prescribed for them to do. And it really would have been a family affair. I mean, you know, you think about it, it makes sense. Now, there's a second reason they're bringing him. You don't have to bring the child for this purification. The purification only applies to the mother. It doesn't apply to the husband. It doesn't apply to the son or the daughter. It wouldn't apply to anybody else. It would just apply to the mother. So you don't really have to have the kid there. But they bring him there in order to do something else. 
And for that, we need to go back in time again to Exodus chapter 13. Turn with me to Exodus 13. And let's see what is going on here. Now, in the Exodus narrative, we've done a study through Exodus. So I know you are perfectly familiar exactly what Exodus 13 says, right? Okay, maybe not. But let me let me lead you into it. God has struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Okay? It's the tenth plague. Night falls. Beforehand, they are told to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, on the lentils, so that um, when the angel of the Lord came through, he would pass over your house. That's where the name Passover comes from. And then he institutes the Passover, and he says, this is something you're going to do every year. This is something we're going to repeat in order to remember how I delivered you out of Egypt. And when you do it, you're going to eat it with sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand. You're going to eat it quickly. You're not going to sit down and lounge around and relax because the Israelite slaves weren't able to do that. They had to eat and be ready to go because at a moment's notice, they're going to get word. It's time for you to leave. And they're not going to have time to pack everything up. They're not going to have time to sit around and lounge and watch the football game and enjoy the copious amounts of turkey for the next six or seven meals. Okay, maybe I'm importing a little bit uh, from Thanksgiving, but you get the idea. They don't have the time for that because they're about to get rescued from slavery. And so you're going to do this every single year. And then he says, but you know, you really still owe me your firstborn. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Did you catch that? Whatever opens the womb first, that's mine. God would end up telling Moses in verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Skip on down. Every firstborn of man among you, among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. What happens here is God says, your firstborns belong to me, so you need to redeem them. Now, not everybody chose to redeem them. Some actually chose to dedicate them to the Lord's service. Do you remember a boy by the name of Samuel? Hannah says to God, if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you. When he's about three years old, she brings him back to the temple, goes to the priest who had blessed her before and who she had talked with, Eli, and says, here's the son that God gave me. Now I'm giving him back to God. For his service. And Samuel lived in the temple. Now Jesus doesn't live in the temple. Jesus isn't dedicated to God in that sort of way. So he would have been redeemed. And just as the law prescribed, not only would they have done the purification rites for Mary, they would have redeemed the son. Isn't that interesting? The redeemer of all mankind had to be redeemed. Wasn't the first time someone paid money for him. Wasn't the last. 
There'd be a future time when he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. But here, following God's command in every possible way, they redeem him. This is when we meet Simeon. We read verses 25 through 35 this morning. Let me just point out a couple of things to you. Someone was asking me before tonight, and they they were talking about it today, how they were wondering if if this was seeing the Messiah would have been a desire of Simeon's life. And yes, absolutely. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, watch this, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation has two ideas. One idea is someone who brings comfort and peace. The situation is bad, but this is someone who brings comfort to Israel. There's another idea. It's almost, it's a related word. It's a different form of the word. But it's almost the same word that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. Periclesis is the word here. Parakletos is a different form that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. This is the one that would be called alongside Israel. One hymn put it this way, in the bleak midwinter. There are times, and this is one of those times in Israel's history where it's kind of a bleak midwinter. They're under foreign occupation. They haven't heard from God for centuries. And it's in this time that the consolation comes. Simeon has been waiting for it. Simeon has been dreaming of it. Simeon has been told by the Holy Spirit, it's coming, you're going to see it, and he's watching for it. He's anticipating it. He's got his eyes open, ready. And here it comes. We read verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so, led by the Spirit, he comes into the temple. He sees Jesus. He pronounces the blessings and speaks to the parents that we read earlier. And then something else happens. While this is going on, verse 36, there was a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of the lost tribes, one of the northern tribes that had gotten dispersed when the Assyrians came and overran Israel and and eventually Samaria in 722 BC. Those tribes had been lost in history. People had been taken up and and rooted out and moved to a completely different area of the Assyrian Empire. And other folks had been moved in. It created a people that would be known as the Samaritans. You ever heard of those? Those half-bred Jewish, but not quite Jewish folks that many Jews hated, despised, that they thought, well, they're, they're not real people of God. Some of them, though, kept enough lineage that they knew where they came from. Not many. This was apparently one. Her family had kept the lineage, so we know that this was one of the daughters of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. Luke just cannot say old woman. He cannot say that. So he puts it delicately. She was advanced in years. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, she got married lived with her husband for seven years, and then verse 37, as a widow until she was 84. Your version might say that she lived as a widow for 84 years. That is a possible reading, but that would put her over 100 years old. So I I don't know if, if she is. She's very, very old, even for our day. But especially in her day, she would have been old either way. Whether she's 84 or 104, she still would have been old. This was a woman 
who you would think. Well, think about Naomi. I don't know Naomi. Naomi, um, her and her husband had two sons. They got married. Uh, famine hits the land. All the her husband and her two sons all die. It's just the three of them. And uh, she tells Ruth and Orpah, "Go back to your homeland." Orpah cries and goes. Ruth says, "No, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you. My your people will be my people. Your God will be my God." And they live in poverty because a woman can't get very much work. Even in this day, it would have been hard for someone like her to get work. For Ruth and Naomi, it would be scavenging in the fields just to have enough to eat and survive. For a woman like Anna, it probably would have been similar. Just picking up whatever she could, trying to keep food. We don't, we don't see that she has any sons or daughters in the family. She may have. Luke doesn't tell us that. So really, the only thing that she had to look forward to the only thing that really kept her going would have been her faith. And I know that because of the next description. When you're a widow, there's just not much to do. So Luke tells us she did not depart from the temple. This is not the depart that Simeon says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, where it's a release from obligation. This is a departing of leaving with an emphasis on the separation. This is depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. It's that kind of depart, okay? She never left the temple. I don't know if this is hyperbolic, that she actually lived in the temple precinct. Probably not. But I do know that she was there every chance she could get. She would have been there every time the doors opened. She'd have been there all day, every day. She'd have been there every chance she got. And when she wasn't there, she'd have been longing to get there. Look what she does. Worshiping with fasting and prayer. Night and day, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This was her life. It says in coming up at that very hour, that could be standing at that very hour. Maybe she was kneeling in prayer. Maybe she is coming into the gate. Maybe she was walking around that court of women where they would have been and turning a corner saw them. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. Here's a woman that definitely was her desire. And look what she does. And to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This was a prophetess. This is someone who is speaking God's words. And when she sees this baby, she starts thanking God and sharing the news. Let me tell you about this kid. Let me tell you what, what he's going to do. Let me tell you how he's going to redeem us. Let me tell you how he's going to save us. On the one hand, I would love to be this kind of position that Anna's in. Not concerned with anything but but telling others. On the other hand, I have way too many kids and responsibilities and I, I like eating. But it's interesting to me that this widow, that's at least 84 years old, finds her place in God's will. This man, we don't know how old he is, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel finds his place in the will of God. This mother, don't forget, Mary, she's having to find her own way too in God's will. I mean, she told her a year ago she was going to be pregnant. Well, unless you were an angel, <laughs> she probably wouldn't have believed you. What about Joseph? He didn't even... <laughs> he, he kind of signed up for it, but really didn't. It's amazing how God is using these people that are just willing 
And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, everything was done God's way, they returned to Galilee, their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Sounds like a good beginning to a great life, a life full of sorrow and sacrifice, but not full of sin, a life full of obedience to the Father. The next time we see this child, he'll be a teenager, almost a teenager. He'll be a teenager, and he'll be in that same temple. But for now, I think I think we've had enough to chew on for the night. Let me pray for you. Father, may we, like Anna, like Simeon, like Mary and Joseph, like so many others that we will encounter in this gospel, may we be faithful in obedience. God, some of the stuff that you ask people to do is just nuts. Some of the stuff is strange. Some of it's hard to understand. Some of it makes absolutely no sense. Some of it would make perfect sense if we could just see how it's even possible. God, throughout your word, there's so many that obey, even the crazy stuff, even the stuff that seems impossible. There are folks who speak your word in circumstances that are incredible. There are folks who just simply take a bath and are healed of leprosy. There are folks that try to say no to you and (laughs) you pick them up with a big fish and carry them on their way anyway. There are folks that pick up a trumpet and yell because that's the battle plan you dictate. Father, may we be like those who trust you enough to obey. Help us to do things according to your word. Not our own way. Lord, stop the excuses. Stop the stop us in our tracks when we start belly aching or complaining or trying to philosophize our way out of obedience. God, just remind us who you are and that we can trust you. Help us to fulfill our calling by obedience. And help us to love evermore your anointed one, your Christ, your Messiah, as we become ever more like him. Thank you for putting up with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.